Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 343 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, where you'll find writing courses and a wonderfully supportive writing community. And I'm here with Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of The Mapmaker Chronicles and Adaban Cipher, and soon to be The Firestart series. How are you, Al? I, I'm cold, actually. Oh, okay. Haven't cold. we talked about the heater? No, no, the heater's been on, but it's just oh, cold. Okay. It's raining, it's cold, you know, it's winter, yes. which would be fine if I could just be, you know, not having to drive my children around in it, but that's that's oh, the way of it. In fact, to be honest with you, I shouldn't complain. I'm actually happy that I can at least drive my children around in it. Well, and yes. uh, sending love to all of our Lots friends of in Melbourne. Yes. Um, love and warmth is all I can send you at the moment. So I'm hoping that um, hoping that you're all okay and we mm. are very happy to be, you know, keeping you company, I guess, yes. while you're experiencing the lockdown. Absolutely. And, you know, if you need some distraction, join us in the Facebook group. For anyone who's not yet in the Facebook group, uh, just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community on Facebook and request to join. We'd love to have you in there. But yeah, lots and lots of love and support to all our Victorians, our Victorian listeners who are in mega lockdown. Yeah. We want to give a big shout out to Jason Morgan. Thank you, Jason. Jason rated our book. Jason Morgan. (laughs) The book that Alison and I co-wrote, imaginatively titled, So You Want to Be a Writer. (laughs) (laughs) We really pushed the boat out with that, didn't we? Um, How to get started while you still have a day job. Um, And uh, he rated it five stars on Goodreads and said, it was amazing. This book is great for anyone who wants to get into writing. So. Thank you, Jason. That's made our day. It has. Thanks, Jason. And thanks to everyone who's um, taken the time to leave us a review on Goodreads or on Amazon or wherever it is that you um, buy your books because it does uh, really make a big difference to us. If nothing else, it just gives us a little lift for the day. Takes me from fair to middling into, oh, isn't that lovely? (laughs) And if you haven't uh, got your hands on a book yet, you can um, check it out at soyouwanttobeawriter.com.au slash book. And um, and Mida from our office dutifully packs them and sends them out to everyone. So um, it will be sent to you with lots of love and care. Speaking of books, a book arrived for me this week, Al. You may recall me talking about well, me getting a bit excited about the fact that I had ordered this rather expensive book. Gosh, it's expensive. Um, <laughs> called the... <laughs> Yes, called, called the Longman Pronunciation Dictionary. Third I do edition. remember our conversation about this and me just going, "You <laughs> really are a crazy woman." Yeah, but yes. Well, so it's arrived, and is it the arrived. book of your dreams, Valerie? Well, the thing is, <laughs> oh, here we go. The thing when... is, when someone starts with <laughs> the thing is, I feel that you need to kind of just brace yourself. But yes, the thing is, I ripped it open with great anticipation. Now, the thing is, when you buy online, you can't necessarily read all of the little writing on the cover, or you don't pay attention to it. Some people don't pay attention writing, to it. Yeah, yeah. The little writing says, "For upper, intermediate, to advanced learners." 
<laughs> Surely this is you, though, Valerie. Surely you are upper, intermediate to advanced. Anyway, so I op- so this is not like a normal dictionary. It's a pronunciation mm. dictionary. So I opened it, and there's all these words in it, obviously. And um, obviously, it, it, this <laughs> being a dictionary, yes. Now, one needs to basically learn a whole other language. A whole other oh. language because it's written in, I don't even actually know the correct uh, description for it, you know, but phonetically, mm. uh, unsurprisingly, since it's a pronunciation dictionary. What, what were you expecting? Oh, because. Like I, it's obviously for linguists, right? I know, but a friend of mine had it, you see, so I saw it on a Zoom call, got really excited and decided to order it. But when she held it up to me on Zoom, like she held it up to the camera, it's hard to see the little writing. (laughs) But did you say to her, what is this book like? Who is it for? What do you use it for? Or did you just go, that looks awesome, I'm going to buy it? Uh, Yeah, the latter. Okay. (laughs) this is called doing due diligence and asking a question or two Valerie but anyway so what are you going to do are you going to learn the secret language of linguists oh it's the international phonetic alphabet and there are 225,000 pronunciations in it Oh. <laughs> you don't. You just don't even have time for this, Valerie. Like I just don't even understand. Like between, you know, running the Writers Centre, the Australian Writers Centre, doing your painting, doing all of your speaking work, you know, brushing your cats. I don't understand how you cats. think you're ever going to learn to do this properly. So to it's going to become a. Is it going to become like a doorstop? Is that the plan? It is very large. And thick. <laughs> Large books. You know what? I would very much like you to put a photo of said dictionary okay. in the Facebook group just so that we can all have a look, just so we can get a full picture of what it is that you're talking about, okay? Is that okay? Okay, I'll put a photo of it next to my cat so that my yes, cat well, gets I, I was going to say, put a cat for scale and then <gasps> yes. we'll, we'll have a little look at it. So if you want to have a look at Valerie's book... <gasps> Please go to the So You Want to Be a Writer. What is it? So You Want to Be a Writer podcast, a podcast Facebook community. community. Yeah. So my friend, she she re- refers to hers is well thumbed. Like she refers to it um, all the time. So I thought it was going to be a really fun book. <laughs> fun book, right? <laughs> Valerie's idea of fun and my idea of fun are two quite different things. But anyway, let's just <laughs> moving right along. We'll have a look at the book and we can all comment. It'll be yes. fun. <laughs> so I haven't actually, because it only just arrived, in case anyone's interested, I haven't actually really properly read it yet in depth or, you know, gone into much detail. So I will report back once I have had a chance to do that. Okay. <laughs> but I have something a bit exciting. Well, I think it's exciting for everyone. And okay. it's a free printable because I really love this mantra. So I created a printable to remind myself of it. Um, and the mantra is, your genius is what comes naturally to you. And I think that's really, really important to so many creatives. Well, to people generally, but mm. particularly for those of us with a creative mindset. 
And it's something that I figured out very, very late in life. And I wish I figured it out 20 years earlier. So I can't stop telling people about it <laughs> um, <laughs> because I'm, I'm a bit evan- evangelical. And uh, I think that if you, if I had learned this or if I had realized this rather um, a lot earlier, even though it's such a simple concept, obviously I'm a bit slow. Um, uh, if I had realized this a lot earlier, I think I would have found my pursuits, creative or professional or what otherwise, um, maybe a bit more rewarding. And it comes from the idea, and m- maybe you've experienced this, Al, as well, <clears throat> because we're so conditioned from school to um, <clears throat> if we are not good at something, I mean, if we're good at something, hey, that's great, you've got a natural talent, aren't you lucky, you know, that kind of thing, like uh, your son, Book Boy, is with music, right? Mm. And he's doing something very smart in that he's really throwing himself into it. So... Uh, but we're also taught that, you know, hey, you've got this natural talent in this, but you haven't got natural talent in this, you know, you, that's your weakness or that's not where you're great, you're, you're great at, um, what you're great at. So you've got to spend all this time working on it and improving mm. it and doing all this stuff to, you know, get better at it. And even in the workplace, this carries through. So you might have a, um, uh, a, a natural talent at leadership, but p- perhaps, or at um, people skills, but your natural talent isn't natu- isn't necessarily spreadsheets. <laughs> oh. oh gosh, <laughs> or, that would be me. Or attention to detail, or you know, whatever. Right. So, in our performance reviews in the workplace, we're shown the things we're not good at, and we need to we've and we get training it. And we need to improve in it, and all that kind of stuff. And sure, there are certain things that if you've committed to a responsibility in that area, you've committed to responsibility, so you are you should actually get better at something you've committed to. But in in life, in in a, in a wider um, in the wider venue of life, it's kind of like it doesn't make sense when you think about it. It's like instead of spending all this time getting better at something that you're actually not great at or might never be good at, or not never be good at, but it takes you a lot of effort to be good at, why not throw all of that time and energy into something that you have a natural tendency towards and instead become stratospheric in it like your son is, right? Mm. But so much of my life, I have done the opposite. And I really, it took until my 40s (laughs) to figure it out. So I'm like, okay, I don't understand how to do this tax thing. I'm going to read the Tax Act. Or I don't understand how to code this. So I buy a book on coding. And that's just ridiculous. I now, it took me, like I said, a long time, but now I pay the accountant. Now I pay coders. <clears throat> to to do such things. And in, I shouldn't have wasted all my time in doing the stuff that didn't come naturally to me. And I should have spent my time investing my time in the stuff that, um, that, that I already had a natural skill in. So that's why I love the, I love the mantra, your genius is what comes naturally to you because it reminds you of where you should be spending your time. Really? The thing I like about it is that it it also reminds us that genius has many forms and that there's not one way to be a genius. There's not one thing yes. that makes you a genius. Um, that you know, uh, you know. For example, I um, so so Book Boy has his music. My younger son is one of those people that is very very good at people. 
like really good at people. Right. Like in that sort of social kind of way. He's the kind of kid who goes somewhere and has a new best friend within five minutes flat, you know, where mm. everyone else is still trying to work out what someone else's name is. He's <laughs> that. And that's a gift. But that's not a gift that's often recognised yes. as being a touch of genius. Like people are – and there's a great little um, – there's actually a great kids' book called All the Ways to Be Smart. Um, oh. I'm trying to think who wrote it. I think it was Davina Bell that came out last year um, that, that, that that looks at this and, and, and helps kids to understand that just because you're not great at maths doesn't mean – you're not a smart kid. You might be, as you say, you might be brilliant at art. You might be terrific at plants. You might be mm. really good at people. You could be. So I think that that's as much anything, you know, that is that recognition that genius takes many, many forms. I think that's really important to recognise as well. So nice work. I'll be downloading the printable and um, <laughs> I hope that everybody else will also go to ValerieKoo.com to get their free printable. Where do we find it on your site, Val? So just go to ValerieKoo.com and there'll be at the very top of the page, um, you'll be able to get the free printable there. And it's just one that, you know, I thought it needed to be also beautiful so that I wanted to stick it up and somewhere and look at it and remind myself every day um, of this approach that, that, that I should be, you know, adopting all the time in life. Mm. All right, let's move on. So, oh, very exciting. We're having a Facebook Live, which if you are a member of the podcast community on Facebook or also any of the Australian Writers Centre sites, we will be streaming live this Sunday, the 16th of August at 11am with Tim Harris. Now, Tim has been on the podcast before. He's the author of the Mr. Bambuckle's Remarkable series and Toffle Towers, and he's got um, a couple of other books out this this year, which we will talk about. And he's going to be talking about how to write funny stories for kids, which is, I think, a great topic mm. um, if you're interested in being funny, but also writing for that middle grade um uh, which is, is which is the age group that he he writes for, and he is a former school teacher who um, has been listening to this podcast. Hi, <laughs> ever Tim. Since, <laughs> hi, Tim. <laughs> ever since before he was an author, and then became an author, and he has featured on this podcast as well. And um, very very excited to be doing a Facebook live with him. He's got countless books now, so many. I can't even remember how many uh, books now. So he and and does a lot of school visits and is a very successful author. So very excited to talk to Tim. So make sure you tune in Sunday the sixteenth of August, twenty twenty, at eleven a.m. And you can ask all of your questions to Tim as well, which will be fun. Mm. Let's move on to our competition this week. We have three copies of Enid by Robert Wainwright. Uh, so you, this you can win one of three copies. From the best-selling author of Sheila comes the story of a bewitching Australian socialite who fascinated the world. Enid Linderman stood almost six feet tall with silver hair and flashing turquoise eyes. The girl from Strathfield in Sydney stopped traffic in Manhattan, silenced gamblers in Monte Carlo, and dared walk a pet cheetah on <laughs> on a diamond collar through Hyde Park in London. In early 20th century society, when women were expected to be demure and obedient, the granddaughter of Hunter Valley wine pioneer Henry Lindemann waltzed through life to the beat of her own drum. From Sydney to New York, London to Paris and Cairo to Kenya, Robert Wainwright tells the fascinating story of a life lived large on the world stage. Now, 
Listeners may remember that we did interview Robert, Robert Wainwright, um, Robert. not Wobbit, <laughs> Robert <laughs> Wainwright, on the podcast when he released his book Rocky Road, which was the story about um, Darryl the Daryl Lee company, yes. yes, which was riveting reading. So I have no doubt that Enid will be um, similar, a similar experience because he's a really good researcher and a really good storyteller. So for your copy, um, if you want to – a chance to win your copy, go to writercenter.com.au slash win. Entries close on the 17th of August. Uh, and that's writercenter.com.au slash win. So, Al, are you ready for the word of the week? So ready. So ready. Okay. So ready. The word of the week is, well, it's actually two words, but it, they go together. It's sub rosa. Sub Rosa, S-U-B, new word, R-O-S-A. Do you know what it is? I sort of do. I oh, do put, Yeah, I do. In context, I would mm. be, yeah, I could put it in context, put it that way. Okay. Don't you find that with a lot of words that you can, you understand them contextually, but you. It's hard to explain. You can't necessarily define them, yeah. Yes. But anyway, yeah, I sort of do. So, but you, you need to like, uh, let me not ruin your fun. No, Val, <laughs> I have no idea what it means. Please tell me everything. Well, I, when I first saw it, I thought they just reminded me of Sub-Zeros. Remember Sub-Zeros? Did you used to drink Sub-Zeros? Oh, <laughs> I don't ever need to be reminded of Sub-Zeros ever again. Did you used to drink again. Sub-Zeros? I did. Oh, yes. oh I'm having, now I'm having flashbacks. That was not oh. a good thing to bring up. I know. Anyway. I remember they became the cool thing because that's when we graduated from um, West Coast Coolers. West Coast Peach. Coolers. <laughs> What's that? Peach? Wild Peach Coolers. Oh, Oh, let's like let's not go back to that moment in our yeah. lives. I don't think we need to relive those. Anyway, oh, if you don't know what we're talking about, it's You're like what, where are we? Late eighties, early nineties <laughs> drinks, aren't we? Oof. Early nineties, early nineties. Yeah. Uh, okay, so mount, might sound like it refers to a ready-to-drink beverage from the nineties, but it's not. <laughs> According to the Macquarie Dictionary, it means. In secret or confidentially or privately. So you might say the information was passed on to Mary Sub Rosa. Mm, uh-huh. You might say that. And that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre and our course, Freelance Writing at Stage 1. If you want to be a freelance writer, our five-week online course is the fastest way to get there. Step-by-step, you'll explore how to get story ideas, approach editors, research and structure your article, plus learn about interview skills, industry expectations, and much more, and have your own tutor to answer all your questions. Here's what Kat Rohde says. Before I did the course at the Australian Writers' Centre, I was on extended maternity leave and then I started a blog just talking about my experience of motherhood. I got lots of good feedback about my blog and my writing style and lots of people said, you know, you should, you're good at writing, you should do something with this. After doing the course, I had some really uh, good structure around how to put together a feature, technical things like how to transition from uh, one subtopic to another, uh, how to write a good hook at the beginning, how to take myself out of the story um, and also kind of the biggest thing was just how to approach editors and how to put together a pitch that would get a response and not just be met with silence. Since doing the course I've been published in, in lots of different publications, some uh, great magazines like uh, Good Weekend, 
Sunday Life, Practical Parenting, Mother and Baby, Mind Food and online um, with um, Sydney Morning Herald's Life and Style and extensively at um, Essential Baby and Essential Kids. Best thing is that it's something that I've always wanted to do and it's a, it's a dream come true. I'm doing my dream job and you know that's that feels so good to say. Secondary to that, it's so flexible. I get to work for myself, set my own hours. So I think what I want to say is that the course is so thorough that if you go away and you follow your notes and you do exactly what you're told to do, then you will be successful. To find out more, go to writerscentre.com.au slash freelance writing. Alrighty, let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Who have we got, Al? Oh, this week I had a lovely chat with Jeff Apter, who is um, an author and um, journalist uh, specialises in biographies, mostly music biographies. And we had a good chat about his latest book, which is called Friday on My Mind, and is the story of George Young, who was half of the songwriting team, Vander and Young, and also a member of the Easy Beats. Um, so we had a really good chat about, uh, obviously, like putting together the biography of, of somebody really well known, but also how to because uh, Jeff's done a lot of great celebrity interviews over the years for Rolling Stone mm. and magazines like that. So we had a good chat about how to actually get a decent interview out of someone who is interviewed all the time. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Jeff Apter is the author of more than 25 books, many of them music biographies of the likes of the Finn Brothers, Johnny O'Keefe, the Bee Gees, Silverchair, Keith Urban and more. He has also co-written or ghost-written memoirs such as those of musicians Casey Chambers and ACDC's Mark Evans, as well as sports stars Michael Slater and Timmy Cahill. His latest book, Friday on My Mind, The Life of George Young, is out now. Welcome to the program, Jeff. Thank you for having me along, Alison. It's great. Excellent. All right, so we're going to go back a wee bit in time to where it all mm. began, just a wee bit. How did you get started mm. in the writing business? It's it's a, a series of uh, fortunate events, I guess is the best way I'd describe it. I had vague aspirations of writing, particularly about music. When I was about, I think about 18, I, you know, I went through school, didn't have a real clear path, apart from um, a pretty strong interest in sports, actually. I was a, a reasonable golfer and cricketer at school and thought one of those might be a career. Um, but high school was a disaster for me. The only subject I excelled in was absenteeism, um, although I, loved, I always loved to read. And I fell into a series of sort of mundane white-collar admin jobs for a number of years. And read a book called No One Here Gets Out Alive, which is written by a guy called um, uh, Barney Hot. Uh, sorry, it's a, it's a biography of Jim Morrison from The Doors. I've read it. And um, it was, yeah, well, it was the first time I'd read a book with the musical subject that actually treated it with seriousness mm. in so much as it wasn't a scrapbook. It wasn't some kind of, you know, sycophantic study, fan study. It was a serious biography of a really fascinating and troubled character, um, a very flawed character, but one who was completely, to me, was uh, engrossed and wrote some great songs and, and lived this ridiculously fast, short life. And it was the first time I'd read a book like that that actually suggested to me there was a way to kind of mix music, and not just strictly music, but you know, the arts in general, and writing about it in a way that brought it to life. And I thought, now that's interesting. So how do I do that? Now, 
late twenties, I was still, you know, kind of work in these kind of anonymous jobs. But really, all I've gone probably from teenage onwards, deep interest in music. As I've discovered and talked about recently with a bunch of friends of mine who are still in touch, we all had older siblings, and our older siblings always had good taste in music. One was into Bowie, one was into Lou Reed, one was into Dylan, one was into Neil Young, and they introduced us, and I'm talking the 70s here, obviously, they introduced us to all this music, which, you know, we all basically inhaled um, very deeply on, and it became a real passion for a whole group of us. Um, perhaps I carried that passion through longer than most, because most of those people went on to become, to, you know, to serious jobs, you know, proper jobs like teachers and, you know, business people and so on. I stumbled through a series of jobs, but always with this kind of vague idea of how do I, how do I become a writer and how can I write about music? And I was reading a magazine that really was very unlike me to read. I think it was an audiophile magazine. And I was only looking at it because there were some record reviews in it. And this must have been about 1989, I think. And there was a review of an REM record, and it was complete rubbish. I completely disagreed with every single thing the writer said. And typically, I'd just, you know, blow, blow a bit of smoke, or blow a bit of hot air and, and just let it go. But in this case, I actually wrote to the editor of the magazine. And I said, the guy who, I said, the guy who wrote that review is an idiot. I said, he has no idea what he's talking about. Everything in the review is wrong. Um, you know, why do you publish such rubbish? And he wrote back to me and said, the guy you're talking to about was me. And if you're so good at it, why don't you write some reviews for us? So it was a challenge. Seriously, it was a challenge. And of course, he was probably expecting me to disappear into the ether, but I'd actually been chipping away at trying to do something like that forever. So I sent back, if I remember correctly, four or five reviews, which he published, and I continued to write for that magazine for the next 15 years. It became my first permanent gig. Yeah, so, you know, uh, while I'd, after school, I'd gone on to do, and I'm doing a bunch of different, courses, didn't do a degree, but I, I did a diploma in editing and publishing. I did, you know, writing classes and all those kind of things, which were all very helpful, but none of which really, it was hustling that got me a job, my first start in, in writing, basically. So that was great. So, you know, I got started. I was still holding down a fairly uh, mundane job, but in the mid-90s, I had a bit of a life change. I, I, on the surface, it looked like a breakdown, but it was actually a bit of a breakthrough I'd been in a long distance, a long distance, sorry, long-term relationship. It was falling apart. I met someone else, and I moved to America. Quit my job, and basically said, "I'm going to set myself up and become, I guess, the overseas correspondent." Because my intention was always to come back after a couple of years. So I began filing stories back home about the people I met in America. And when I said the people, I was fortunate enough to meet and interview. We're talking Aretha Franklin, Patti Smith. Bob Dylan, you know, legends, John Fogarty, all these great, great people. How did that happen? As though? well as charting. <laughs> like this. Well, I had a, well, I already had a, a leg up. So I had a bit of a track record as a music writer through, yeah. because after that Hi-Fi magazine, then I started to write for what were called street press, free press magazines. Yep. I got, got some work with Rolling Stone. So I had a bit of a track record. So when I went to America, I contacted different record companies, and they were fantastic. American record companies are great. If you're going to write about their artists, they'll help you out in any way they possibly can. And also having this new, this different angle that I was an Australian journalist, filing stuff back to Australian magazines and newspapers, that gave me an additional, um, special kind of quality, I guess, for them. So um, 
it was a regular thing. Every couple of weeks I'd be invited. I was living just outside of New York and I'd be invited down to the city where, oh, I don't know, um, I remember once it was Spike Lee, Stevie Wonder and Pavarotti were promoting a concert that was going to take place in Italy that Spike Lee was going to film in Pavarotti's home city. Another time, as I say, it was Aretha Franklin talking about a new album. Another time it was the Rolling Stones launching their Bridges to Babylon tour under the Brooklyn Bridge. You know, all these amazing one-off events that I got to cover, as well as having um, the opportunity to see a lot of great artists and also to interview a lot of great artists. So I built up a really good repertoire of work and I think got much better at what I was doing. I kind of got my head around what made a good story, you know, what worked, how I could write something in 500 words, how I could expand that to 2,000 words if necessary. Can I just so ask I a question saying, on that, uh, though? In the mm. sense that you mm. were being invited by the record companies, and, and I do I do know how this works, but you've been invited by the record companies. Is there pressure on you at that point to produce a puff piece, like that you're, you know, basically just doing PR? Or how do you balance that in the sense of, all right, like they've brought me down here to talk to Aretha. What if I really dislike Aretha's latest song or whatever? Yeah, well, look, I'd be a liar if I if I ignored the fact that there was that unspoken pressure. Mm. Um, but it, I never, ever had... It only ever happened back in Australia. And okay. I have a couple of funny stories about that. <laughs> only when I returned to Australia did I really experience um, the weird pressure that could be applied because the record company considers they've done your favour. Um, Rita Franklin was hilarious. I mean, it was held in uh, it was the middle of summer in New York, which is blazingly hot, and it was hosted in this club called Le Cirque, which is a restaurant come sort of odd, upscale New York club. Not a nightclub, but just a club, you know, like a library and so on. A very, very upscale place. And there was, I think, five or six. Typically, there'd be five or six. There'd be the Swedish guy and the German guy and, you know, maybe a, a British writer and the token Australian reporter there as well, which was me. And, um, you know, so it was a really odd mix. So when they came into the room, when, you know, Rita will be here shortly, these two very big, burly black guys wearing overcoats in the middle of summer took up spots at the front and rear door of this, this room. And of course, it dawned on me, Rita Franklin is, is much more than a musician in America. You know, she was a spiritual figure. Her father, the Reverend Franklin, was one of the key African-American spiritual leaders in the country. So, you know, she carries a lot of clout. She's a very important person. So she had her bodyguards sitting, standing in the room. So that was an interesting opening salvo to meeting Aretha. But the honest truth was, when she came in, she was fantastic. She was really gracious and very warm. And you all, so what you would do was ask, we'd all ask some general questions. Hey, how's it going? Tell me about making the record, Aretha, what's your favorite song, da, da, da. And then she'd have little one-on-ones with you. And um, she said to me, so you're from Australia? And I said, yes, tell me, in the Thornbirds, and she went on to describe this passage in Colleen McCulloch's Thornbirds. Oh, now, <laughs> if she'd asked me about, if she, yeah, I know, she'd asked me about Peter Carey, I'd be okay. If she'd asked me about Tim Winton, Look, if she asked me about Bryce Courtney, I reckon I could have winged it. But I had never read the Thornbirds. No. I didn't ever see the mini series. My, oh, no, that so, was my moment. I should have been there. I would have been able to chat with her for hours oh, about the Thornbirds. <laughs> oh, bingo. Well, the story gets funny. So she, she was very polite, she, but she did give me that kind of, I know you don't know what you're talking about, but you're trying your best look, which was very nice of her. <laughs> Fast forward 10 years, and I was interviewing Helen. Oh, sorry, sorry, yeah, 10 years. I was interviewing Helen Reddy, and Helen Reddy was in the process, was in Sydney, I was back in Australia by this time, 
she was in the process of leaving Sydney to go back and live with her son in America. And she was living in this, this little studio apartment in Elizabeth Bay. Mind you, it's right on the harbour, nice views, but uh, really quite a small monastic-like existence, you know. And she said, look, I'm packing some stuff, but I'm clearing things off my shelves and I don't really want to take them with me, so take anything you want. Now, the first thing I went for, what I was really keen on, was a signed photo from Gerald and um, Eddie Ford. She'd obviously been to the clinic, but I think that was a bit too personal, so she wouldn't let me have that. But the next thing I spotted was, would you believe it, a signed copy of The Thornbirds. <laughs> and, you know, to Helen, lots of love, Cole. And I'm thinking, damn, if I had this book 10 years ago, I would have been in Aretha Franklin's entourage. We would have been best friends we would have forever. Been so. forever. Well, yeah, that, absolutely. That, so, yeah. That actually brings me to one of the questions I was going to ask you later, but let's do this now. When you're interviewing someone mm. like that, like you're in a room with Aretha, which, you know, most people would be just, I probably wouldn't have even been able to speak, but that's a whole other story. Um, mm. How do you go about getting a good interview with someone who has been interviewed so many times and is likely to give you, yeah, we, a, you know, the, the rote answer to everything? Yeah, it, it's a fair question and it's hard. I, um, to be honest, in that situation, she kind of did all the work for me because she opened the conversation <laughs> and pretty much closed it too when she realised I didn't know anything that I, anything about Colleen McCulloch's work. Yeah. I've when I, went, when I worked at Rolling Stone, um, I'd often, I remember a good example was an interview came up with Lou Reed and Lou Reed was, was a notoriously difficult interview, mm. didn't suffer fools, you know, he would, he'd walk out of interviews if you, you know, if you didn't, if you didn't impress him initially. And I wasn't doing the interview, but I remember quite um, clearly sitting down with the writer and really must have spent the best part of half a day coming up with the perfect opening question. And I kind of, and it turned out to be, it was a geeky question. It was asking about amplifiers, if I remember correctly, or uh, something about his equipment. And that got Lou in. Lou loved the guy. You know, Lou extended their interview time and signed his autograph and signed his record covers and everything and was, you know, the nicest guy on earth. And it was a, that was an interesting and useful experience for me. It has to be the opening question. It has to be something where it shows you've done your research. You haven't just walked in fight, you know, cold from being told by your editor, you've got to go and interview someone. And because so many questions are wrote and so many of those types of interviews, you see them with um, film junkets particularly, yeah. they just get wheeled into a room and get asked the same question by 50, 60 journalists in a day. Well, of course, in the end, it's just, you know, it's going to become laughable. So you really have to come up with some unique question. In hindsight, if I'd known about, you know, Aretha and the Thornbirds, I would have asked her a question about that. And, you know, that would have got me in. And, of course, nowadays it's, it's easier to do that kind of research because of, you know, the notorious internet. It's, um, and it does have some useful qualities when it comes to finding out esoterica about not just artists, you know, politicians, sports people, whoever. You've just got to try to reach a little further, dig a little further and come up with something that you hope hasn't been asked a hundred times before. And sometimes it, can, it doesn't have to be intrusive. It could just be about, you know, oh, you're a big fan of Team X. Um, you know, you like to use guitar Y. Um, I saw you wearing, a friend of mine used to use, uh, something about your shoes. And that was a good icebreaker with a lot of people, you know, because a lot of people believe, you know, shoes make up the band. <laughs> and that used to work really well, particularly rock stars who are very vain. You know, to ask them about their shoes often got a really, really good response. So, you know, you just have to do your research and just you have to really 
don't ask the 10 standard questions because you know the chances are that person you're speaking to has just answered those 10 questions 20 times over and they're just going to give you you know the same 10 answers that they gave to the same previous 10 journalists so you're basically looking for the perfect angle into the interview as much as you are into the story yeah, look, and that interview could then go into the usual stuff because mm. you do need those nuts and bolts when you're doing a piece. But just to give you a slightly, present yourself slightly different now, I guess, to everybody that's come before and also show that you've done your research, that's invaluable. It really is. All right, so let's talk about how you went from writing feature articles because you wrote for Rolling Stone, as you said, you wrote for, um, you know, you've written for a whole range of different um, publications. How did you go from doing that? Oh, yeah, I kill, by the way, I, just to say, you know, I kill publications, by the way. I was the music writer for The Bulletin, dead. Rolling Stone Australia, dead. Um, GQ Australia, I don't know if it exists anymore. <laughs> Time out. It seems that everybody I contribute to actually just falls apart. So, you know, never hire me, I think is, is my advice. That's quite um, the reputation. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. Oh, that's okay. I was talking to someone yesterday. I was doing an interview for the book, and they said by... Uh, uh, we were talking about a couple of other Australian artists and they were talking about John English and they said, oh, we interviewed him just a week before he died and talked about Greedy Smith from Mentalist and think, oh, we interviewed him about a week before he died. And I said, hang on a minute. <laughs> Should I be checking with my doctor right now because you've got quite this the track record? Anyway. So, so what happened you... after I left America? And I, sorry, I, I left America. I came back in 1998 and I got a permanent job at Rolling Stone in Sydney. Yep. And, um, you know, I guess, because I'd established a really good track record and um, I, you know, sort of understood how it worked, how to get a good story, how to get a good feature, how to write a good pithy hundred word review, you know, even how to write a good caption, you know, things like that. You had to have these broad based skills. Um, while I was there, and again, I was uh, at that point, I'd got to that point where most journalists get to is that I want to work in a longer form. You know, a book is always the ultimate destination, I think, for most writers and anybody who tells you something to the contrary, I'm not sure they're telling you the truth. You know, you're a writer. You know what it's like. You want to get – a book is the ultimate – it's the Everest of, of, of – particularly for journalists. It's really, you know, getting to that, uh, the peak of your career. And um, we were – I was talking to a, a book publisher who came into the magazine. We were running an extract from a book, and um, we were just talking, you know, and, and quite often the magazine would run extracts from books because – Usually we got it for free. It's a long story too about yeah, the uh, yeah, yeah. Um, the difference between Australian Rolling Stone and American Rolling Stone. It's all about the money, or it all wasn't about the money because we had no money at all. Yeah. So we were doing this piece, and um, then the publisher just said to me out of the blue, "said So where's your book?" And I thought, "Oh," and it was almost a, a repeat of the situation when I got my first magazine writing job, because she said, "Well, you know, you come up with an idea, and if it's any good, I'll see if I can get you a deal." I'm like, wow, okay, God, it's not supposed to happen like this. And at the time, I'd been doing a lot of work for the magazine with um, the band Silverchair. I was particularly interested in the lead guy, Daniel Johns, the songwriter, the front man, who was, to me, the most interesting character to come out of Australian music in the last 25 years. He's eccentric and he's really quite brilliant. And he came out of Newcastle, of all places, um, which, you know, like Wollongong, is not necessarily renowned for um, producing enigmatic and quite brilliant artists, although it's got their fair share, but, you know, the cities typically are renowned for other things. And um, I said to her, well, what about a book on Silverchair? And she said, great, get cracking. 
and actually got a deal. And again, it was like a challenge than anything else. You know, the, of course, I embraced it. I, I, you know, I, I think I managed to turn around a 80,000 word book in, I think it's two or three months. It was pretty quick um, because I had all the source material because I'd been spending so much time with the band working on pieces for the magazine that I was able to utilize that and also get additional interviews and really, so it was the chance to expand upon, I think I'd written a 5,000 word piece for the magazine. So they had the opportunity to expand it into, like I say, a 75,000 word manuscript. That was great. It was just a a bit of dumb luck, you know, really. Did you have any trouble like, okay, you said, I want to write a book about Silverchair, Daniel Johns. And Mm. did you have any trouble convincing Silverchair that you writing a book about them was a good idea? Well, you know, I write a mixture of authorised, unauthorised, ghostwritten projects. I don't ever really, unless it's commissioned by the, the artist or the publisher has hired me to be a ghostwriter with someone, I don't actually actively pursue permission. What I do is, in this instance, I knew the manager and I wrote to him and said, look, an opportunity has come up for me to write a book. I'd really love to do it. I'm a big fan of the band. Um, do you think I'd ever get some access? And he basically said yes. Okay. But at no point, we, when, he, when he said that you can't call it an authorised book, and I understood that, he said yeah. because that costs money. Yeah. You know, it costs lots and lots of money. So, you know, most of my books, quite comfortably for me, fall into that crack between authorised and unauthorised. So, for instance, books on ACDC, you're never going to get access to any of the people in that band because they don't do media. They don't need to. Their records and their concert tickets sell without them doing any publicity whatsoever. So I would typically, and I've done this a few times because I've written quite a few books about them. I write to the company. I let them know, hey, this is who I am. I'm writing this book. Uh, it's going to be through this publisher. It's going to be published then. Um, I have, it'll be written with nothing but respect and interest and uh, admiration for the band. It's not, well, I won't necessarily be sucking up. I'll be saying, hey, look, I'm a fan I'm not a besotted fan, but I'm someone who's interested enough in your story to write about it. Mm. And to me, I've never had, I've never received a response saying, no, when we're going to sue you, <laughs> or anything like that. <laughs> uh, you know, not the, yet. the response, typically, well, not yet, no, no. I mean, you know, you deal with your fair share of crazies in this job, but um, I've never had a bad response to that because most managers, record companies and artists themselves are pragmatic enough to know that if someone writes a well-received, well-written book, which I'd like, that's, you know, that's my ultimate goal, yeah. it's going to sell them records. It's yeah. going to sell them concert tickets. It's going to get the focus back on them if they've been out of the spotlight for a while. Yeah. And families, you know, say, for instance, I've written, and it's not a, it seems like a bad habit of mine, but I seem to write about a lot of dead white guys. And um, families... Families quite often will write, gee, I really appreciate the effort you made to remind people about, you know, my son, my husband, my whatever. And that stuff is really great. Um, and I think people quite often, if a period of time has elapsed and someone's gone and you write about them in an honest and forthright and sincere way, even exposing their flaws and foibles, uh, people tend to appreciate that more than if you just did a puff piece. Okay. So do you remember, like, looking back at that first one that you wrote, what the most difficult aspect of writing your first full-length, you know, biography was? Oh, it's, it's just word length. It was really just that. I mean, I had I had a vague idea about structure um, because I typically work in a, a chronological sequence. I knew that they had enough material and events and incidents and controversies to fill a book. I knew that, but it was really just about 
that transference from writing, you know, the most I would, the longest piece I would have written for Rolling Stone would have been 5,000 words. Mm. You know, suddenly I'm going to have to write 15 times that length. So, but it does, it was interesting because I didn't feel it was ever really forced. It's not a very good book and, you know, I've, I've rewritten it essentially to a much more successful book in the last few years. Um, but it was a good starting point because it gave me the confidence to go, oh, okay, here's techniques and methods to expand upon those ideas that I compress in magazines. Because magazine writing and newspaper writing is typically compression. You know, mm. you're, you're trying to make things pithy. You're trying to uh, get to the point straight away. Whereas in obviously writing books, you know, you can really expand upon a thought, hopefully without getting boring or, or getting off the path. These are things that I've learned as I went along. That first book, you know, I, I don't like even looking at it because it's, it's not full of errors. It's just not very well written. You know, it's, it's a very obvious first book, but it's in the same way that most musicians would say, I never listened to my first album, or actors don't want to look at their first film, you know, yeah. um, or a teacher will say, I, I, I totally, you know, erased my first year of teaching because it was so bad, you know. It's, it's a learning curve. Um, odd, oddly enough, once I left Rolling Stone and started to write books full-time, um, it was based upon an arrangement that I had with a UK publisher, again, through someone I met um, through work, through Rolling Stone, who was incredibly supportive and said, let me write to the publisher in the UK and see if I can get some interest in you working for them. And those books are 140,000 words long. Wow. Now, that was That's a, a challenge and a half. Yeah. It is. They were huge. So what they would do, yeah, they do um, 400, 450-page hardcovers, and they do smallish print runs of those and sell at a premium price and then do soft covers soon after. It was very, very, it's pretty manipulative, really. Mm. Um, But it wouldn't work in Australia, as I've discovered, because in Australia, people typically, if they see a hardcover, they'll go, yeah, I'll wait till the paperback comes out. Mm. You know, so it was quite a different thing. But that 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 was a crazy adjustment. That one was a really radical shift. So now that you've written so many of them, because you have written, I mean, that's, you know, mm. you've, you've written a lot of, of, of bios and, and different books. Um, have you created a writing process that works best for you? Like, do you, do you have a sort of like a, um, you know, like it's, I'm going to work out what the big incidents are. I'm going to work out what the chronology is. I'm going to, is that ha- like, what, what would your advice be for someone who's attempting their first biography project? Yeah, I'm, I, you know, my approach is boring as buggery, to be honest. It's a, I write it, create a timeline. Um, I create, it could be 50 pages long, could be even be 100 pages long. And it's every key event from birth to death. You know, it, it helps gives me, give me structure for the book and ensure that every key issue is addressed as I go along. It works as almost like a script to the book itself. You know, I can find myself, okay, tomorrow I'm going to be writing about 1972. March was a particularly big month, you know, and there's probably a couple of thousand words there. It can really help me break down the content in a very useful way. And it also helps me know that I'm not going to get stuck, mm. if you know what I mean. Yeah. If I know I'm working on 1972 today, it's going to be 1973 tomorrow. There's no two <laughs> ways around it. So, you know, if that timeline – and the timeline can take as long to put together as the book itself. You know, I could spend – I mean, I've been working on a timeline now for another future book for three months. Um, mm. Once I get to the point of starting to write, it might only be three months to write those 80,000 words because it's all there. What I need to do is just uh, really expand upon it and put a bit of, you know, 
colour and flair into it. Um, so a lot of them that timeline will contain interviews I've done and all kinds of stuff. So, you know, uh, links to videos and God knows what else and, and um, cue points in songs or, or key people, you know, all that kind of stuff that you need. It's all there. So it becomes this invaluable document. I would say to anybody who's writing nonfiction to do that because, or at least attempt to do that because unless you're writing, say, creative nonfiction where time and dates and things don't really count as much as they do in my world. Um, But it's really, really invaluable for what I do. A, because particularly with music stuff, people are very, very pedantic. Readers are incredibly pedantic about, um, you know, that obscure 1972 Japanese orange vinyl B-side that you didn't (laughs) mention. That's that's the stuff I'll get messages about. And initially when that started to happen, I'd get angry about it. But then I, I found a really good technique is when people start to play... Do you, do you know the High Fidelity? You know High Fidelity, yeah, yeah, the yeah, yeah, TV yeah. series? and the, uh, yeah, When people so, get all High Fidelity on me. And I used to be that guy. I was a music nerd for years um, until one day I realised, you know, it's okay to like ABBA. It's fine. You know, I'm not going to judge you on that. Um, but I realised the best way to approach these people, and it's almost always men, is just to write back and say, hey, thanks for your message. Did you enjoy the book? And <laughs> nine times out of ten, I'll get, oh, I loved it. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I just wanted to point out, you know, blah, 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 you know that I'm much missed. more knowledgeable. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's really interesting and very revealing. And I really got a very clear idea of who my audience is because, you know, I, I'm, there's still a part of me that is very much that person too, you know. Oh, you don't know about Big Star. You don't know about, I don't know, that obscure Beach Boys record that never got released, you know, that kind of stuff. It's just snobbery, basically. Well, that's actually it's a question I wanted to ask you, though, because, you know, it, it, it's obviously a key interest for your music and it takes a certain level of music geekery to want to be able to list every George Young song in, you know, in order, etc. But, like, yeah, when you're sure. writing about someone like George, and we will get to your new book in the next question, how do you decide what to put in and what to leave out? Okay, so you leave out the orange B-side, you know, the orange vinyl B-side or whatever. But do you ever <laughs> Oh, I find... wish I didn't. Yeah, yeah, that picked me up on that. <laughs> do you ever find that because you know so much about Australian music history that you might assume knowledge that everyone knows what you know and then you have to, like, maybe spell it out or something when you've met, you know, is there ever that problem that you, that you assume that people know what you know? Yeah, it may have happened at a certain point in my career, but not now. Um, I've worked with a couple of really, really good editors mm. who aren't necessarily music experts, but just really good non-fiction editors yeah. who've you know, made it clear that don't assume anything in the audience. Make sure you spell it all out. And look, the other thing too is, you know, you say, what about, what do I leave in and leave out? What I leave out is writing about writing songs. Nothing's more boring than say, well, he came up with this magical chord. You know, yeah, he was yeah, in yeah. the lounge room one day and this, that's all boring. It's about, you know, and it's probably a segue into this Friday on my mind, you know, the most interesting thing about that song and perhaps even that book is not how they came up with, I don't know, a chord structure or something, but the fact that the song Friday on my mind was inspired in part by a French a cappella group called the Swingle Sisters. Yeah. You know, just, I love that kind of silly uh, esoteric stuff because it's fun and it's interesting. And I think it's what keeps readers engaged not being nerdy necessarily but finding the fun and the, the, the curious and quite odd offbeat things um about music and musicians that's that's you know that's really what i'm interested in and and storylines you know I, I approach stuff i do now much more from a, a traditional 
biographer's perspective than I do a sort of music nerd, which is what I used to do. You know, I used to get hung up. I had this great experience. I was writing about Jeff Buckley, and I was interviewing someone who knew him really well, and I was asking all the wrong questions. I was asking, you know, quite specific questions. Was it June or was it July? Um, where did this happen? Uh, who was involved? You know, and he said to me, look, he said, I know what you're trying to do, and that's, I commend that, but he said, your goal as a writer is to make it a good story, mm. to make people interested in this person, this very interesting person, to heighten their interest in that person. And it doesn't mean you have to go racing for their records, but it means you, you learn more about them and you go, oh, wow, what a life, what an interesting life they led, rather than oh, the way he you know, played that guitar or came up with that magical chord. You know, that's not so interesting. And it actually came out when I was working with Casey Chambers. You know, the first thing she said to me when I was ghostwriting with her is, let's not write about music. Like, fantastic. Let's write about the inspiration for things. Yeah. You know, that's great because I'm not a musician. You know, I'm not a player. I'm not a, a, a musician of any. I barely sing in the shower and karaoke. It takes about six drinks before I even get near the microphone, you know. But I'm so interested in music and the lives of musicians because, like sports people and so many other people, they just live very different lives to ours. You know, that's fascinating in itself. So how do you choose a subject for your biography? Like, how did you come up with um, George Young for this particular book? I mean, I know you said it's on your website, you call it the latest volume in your accidental trilogy of the Young Brothers, but um, <laughs> like, how do you, you know, is it about the people who interest you or the people that you think will interest other people that will interest readers? Yeah, I think there's got to be, there's got to be a commercial perspective. You know, I can't, I can't naively think that I can go to any publisher with a, story about that poor misunderstood Australian musician who never got, but has a great story. No one's going to want to buy that. Or if they do, if there's an audience for it, it's a very small audience. I have to write with a, a mainstream perspective, no doubt about it. And most of my books are about people who are well-known. Um, there a couple of, I have a couple of pet projects that one day I'd love to get off the ground about lesser known people in that world. Um, but the reality of the situation as a, as a you know a career writer as a professional writer is that a I have to make a living and b I have to keep publishers interested in working with me. Um, I've had some good fortune, you know. Recently, in particularly, some of my books have sold really, really well, and you know that's kept me going. But at no point has that given me an in with a publisher where they'll say we'll publish anything. Mm. I always have to come up with something that's um, reasonably commercial and doable. Um, George Young was. Uh, you know, the accidental trilogy thing is true. I, I wanted to write about Malcolm Young a few years ago um, when I knew he was ill. And um, the publisher at the time said, look, we think Angus is a more commercial you know, uh, possibility. And I got that because if you know, think about ACDC, you typically think about the kid, you know, the oldest schoolboy in the world running around with his guitar. So, you know, I, and I'd, I'd worked with people from ACDC, so I had a good idea about the story. While I was doing that, Malcolm and George died. And another publisher came to me and said, can you write both those books? And it was fantastic. That's great. Yeah, I'd love to. Oh, okay. And, of course, doing the Angus and Malcolm books first really made it very apparent to me that as interesting as their stories and that the ACDC story is, the reality is the big story is George. You know, he was their older brother. He was their mentor. He was a trailblazer, not just for the Youngs, but for Australian music. You know, the Easy Beats were the first Australian band to write and record their own songs and have hits with them. Yeah. You know, that was monumental. That was Beatle-like. That was, you know, 
absolute trailblazing and they were the first Australian band to go overseas and have success. So there was this great story. And then I learned more about how the Easy Beats didn't make any money, how when that all fell apart, George spent four years scraping together a living in England, you know, before he came back here and hit absolute pater with uh, Albert's records and, you know, ACDC and the Angels and John Paul Young and all these fabulous Australian acts. So the story was much more expansive and interesting and I think probably dramatic than that of Angus and Malcolm, who were very fortunate that the first big band they were involved in became enormous, you know. George didn't have that experience. George went through this whole roller coaster journey for the better part of, you know, um, 10 years before he really had major success as a producer. So, I, I you know, just as a, a straight-up storyteller, I could tell there was much more scope to that story than there was. And, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with the Malcolm Angus books I'm proud of. I think they told um, a story that has certain parameters. You know, it's only about ACDC. Hopefully told it pretty well. But the George Young book to me is just a much bigger canvas. So when you're writing about someone like George, you know, who died in 2017 and is no longer around, you can't interview, you know, him, you know, obviously the networks that you've built over many years of writing in this space are really important to kind of keep the story authentic because you have to talk to other people who knew him, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. I've got a good, um, a really good base of, uh, you know, not a huge amount of people, but I know there's a good half dozen people or so that I know well, who are very helpful, and I've helped them in certain instances, people I've also helped get book deals, um, who are more than willing to pick up the phone and, and expand upon whatever it is I need to know about um, with little notice. And that's fantastic. So, yeah, it's, it's networking in that way, you know, the music industry, there's all kinds of networking, <laughs> none of which I'm interested in. Um, but the networking for me is developing really good working contacts you know, and I've managed to be able to do that definitely and draw upon um, and draw upon all of them, particularly for the George Young book. But, you know, the next book I'm doing is a family sanction book, so it's different altogether. And it's not about anybody whose name ends with Young. So, you know, I'm branching out. <laughs> I um, I found the George book quite interesting because I, I have a great interest in songwriters and the songwriting process and yeah. stuff. But he's, he's not um, – so he's – like as, from the perspective of the subject of a, of a music bio, where normally you're looking at drugs problems, wild love lives, you know, the whole bit to kind of the drama that fuels a whole range of, of um, you know, high points in a narrative. With George, you've got someone who focused sure. so hard on the work and, you know, ha was married to the same person for, I don't know, eight million years and, you know, was obviously very <laughs> family orientated. You know, does that make your job easier or harder when it comes to creating a, you know, a compelling narrative? Yeah, well, it's not the most glamorous. It's not a sex, drugs and rock and roll story, that's for sure. Um, I mean, there's more of that in the ACDC story. Um, mm. I think it was interesting, you know, because to me it's a, it's a working class story and it's a sort of classic rags to riches working class story for me. Mm. Um, I like, I mean, because I'm work, very working class. I was raised in the western suburbs of Sydney in the 60s and 70s when there really were western suburbs. You know, you were really on the outskirts of the city and there was a reason you were living there, you know, so vastly different to what it's like now. Um, so I understood that. I could really relate to that. And, yeah, it, 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 you, it is good when you've got a bit of um, sexiness, a bit of glamour, a bit of sensation and, you know, this book, there was a terrific review written by Glenn A. Baker who said it's not a controversial book. And, and it, it isn't because 
there's nothing particularly controversial about George Young's life. It's a it's a story about total focus and dedication, and you know, um, a magic, um, you know, an amazing musical um, diversity. You know, to have produced "Lovers in the Air," "Bad Boy for Love," and you know, "Yesterday's Hero" in the same and Friday on my mind, they're all vastly different types of music. Mm. And yet here's this guy who managed to be able to uh, create it all seemingly effortlessly. That that was really interesting to me. I mean, there was, there was drama. There was that, that whole four-year binge I talk about in the yeah. book. Yeah. That to me was really interesting because that was hand-to-mouth. I mean, that was going from being part of a, a relatively high-flying, you know, internationally successful pop band to living in a you know a bit of a dumpy house and working in this very pokey studio with anybody who'd come in, and as I've later discovered, they were working on jingles. They were yeah. doing anything that came in the door, you know, anything that would make them a living. So I thought that was really interesting. But yeah, it's not. I guess it, you're right. It's not your typical. It's not the dirt, you know. It's not the Motley Crue story. <laughs> you know, it's, it's no way your typical rock and roll story because this is a guy who was. Probably by nature a pretty serious guy, you yeah. know, a bit stern, a bit dour, a bit Scottish, you know. Scottish. Um, probably as successful as he became, certainly hung on to his working class roots and kept those, kept his family close, you know. It was, yeah. no, it was no mistake, it was no accident that when Malcolm Young went into AA in the uh, in the eighties and oh, sorry in the nineties and was out of ACDC for all, they brought in their nephew to play. Mm. They were never going to bring in some, you know, high-flying guitarist from Bon Jovi. That was never going to happen. No. So that's it. That's interesting for me too. You know, that clannish nature of of immigrants, and it's a ten-pound pom story too, which yeah. which interests me because I think there's an entire book to be written about the ten-pound pom scheme and its contribution to the Australian music well, industry. Yeah, well, you see a little yeah, bit of that just in this book, don't you? Like, it's I was quite, I was yeah, fascinated absolutely. by the numbers of them that there were that sort of turned yep, up on the page. The Youngs, the Gibbs, the Barneses, you name them. They're yeah, all ten pound yeah. palms. You know, they're all. Yeah, it's it's a really long and lengthy bloodline. And it's probably a very good story in itself. You know, and a real um, reflection of the possibility of Australia post war post war Australia. You know, I think that's really interesting. All right, so um, you mentioned you're working on something different at the moment. Is that one that will – like you're, oh, you're sort of doing one a year at the moment or – Yeah, that's 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 what the necessity is to, to basically keep my head above the water. Yeah. Um, one book a year, um, a trickle of royalties, hopefully, um, speaking gigs, um, the occasional you know newspaper or magazine piece. That's basically how I get by. Um ELR and PLR, but I don't, you know, you know about that. But I, I mean, do. that's pretty boring for the average listener. But it, <laughs> that's incredibly helpful. I tell you, I love June. I really do. Um, but yeah, yeah. But I'm always juggling. I'm like at the moment, I've finished. I've just finished the draft of a manuscript on a book on John English, which is coming out March or April next year. It's being edited now, and I've got two other projects that I am at the starting point of, and I'm just spending the next six weeks promoting this book. So, you know, there's a lot going on all the time. Yeah. Um, the project's always at different stages of evolution, if you like. You know, uh, one of those projects I'm working on, that timeline I talked about. Yeah. Uh, another one because it's a um, it's a ghostwriting, co-writing project. I'm waiting till the borders are open <laughs> oh, <laughs> I have right. to go to Queensland. Yeah, and okay. I just can't get there to get started because I need to sit down with this person. So, um, you know, everything's at a, a different stage of evolution. But, you know, now I, um, I used to think about books as, being done when the manuscript's done, but I don't do that anymore. The last 10 books, 
I've been involved in everything from the original concept through to, you know, the promotion of the book two years later. Yeah. I'm involved in cover decisions, um, even involved in the decision of use of type and font and captions and photo selection and all that stuff. You know, that's a, a bit of advice I give to any writer if they have that option is to get never, ever um, don't get involved in certain aspects of the creation of the work, um, even though, you know, if you're working with a, a reputable publisher, you're working with good people, at the same time, you need to be comfortable with everything that goes into a book. And, you know, there's no point saying when a book is published, go, oh, uh, look, X, you know, person X screwed it up. Well, you know, in most cases, that's something you could have had some input into as well. So, you know, I'm a big advocate for being a control freak. <laughs> Well, that's that's an excellent segue into our the last question that we ask all of our visiting authors, which is for their top three tips for aspiring writers. So your first one would be to be across all aspects of. Oh know, yeah, yeah, and, and I'm not kidding. Be a control freak. Yeah, it may it may irk some people, but just make it clear that you want to be actively involved in all stages of the book, not just the creation and you know, the, not the writing and editing and so on of the manuscript. If the publisher is open to that, I mean. It's very hard for a first-time writer to do that. But if you're, you know, getting established and you've got a reasonable track record, publishers are very open to that because it helps make the book better. It's yeah. as simple as that. Yeah. Um, the second a bit of advice, learn how to make really good coffee because there's a good chance you're going to have to work as a barista for a while. No <laughs> doubt about that. <laughs> it's serious. I'm absolutely, I think it was, was Christus Tolkien said something about if you want to become a writer, make sure you've got a good second job because yeah. it's a very hard job to make a reasonable income from. And third, I don't know, keep reading. You know, I, I sometimes fail to do that. And, and, you know, sometimes I get so absorbed in my own work that the idea of, you know, even cracking the spine of another book is just not something that excites me. But I find I go through periods where, you know, like I'm reading Utopia Avenue at the moment. It's just great. I just love it. I just read a book called, you know, Daddy Cool by Darlene Bungie. And it's just, um, they were just really refreshing. And I wouldn't say necessarily, I went, ah, oh, great, here's some good ideas for me. It was just relaxing, I think. It was just yeah. a totally um, different world to kind of lose myself in. And, and sometimes you lose um, grasp of the value of that, of other writers. Yeah. Um, some people get really paranoid and think, oh, I better not read too much because I'll just be too much like a sponge. And that, that is a concern. Um, but if I tend to get away from, um, I don't read a lot of the books, the type of books I necessarily write. I'm more of a nonfiction fan, but, you know, I try to mix it up a bit. And sometimes it's just a reminder. What are you doing it for in the first place? It's because a book can achieve so many things. And, you know, that's if I can get in, even close to that, I'm really satisfied. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Jeff Apter. Friday on My Mind, The Life of George Young is, of course, out now for all of those people who are interested in biography, interested in music, or just really fascinated by songwriting, which I am. Um, and, of course, we can find out more about you, Jeff, at your website, which is jeffapter.com, I think, or .au. .au. Um, so thanks again for your time. I'm sure that our, our listeners have uh, found that as interesting as I did and we're all a bit jealous that you got to meet Aretha and we didn't, but that's okay. <laughs> thanks, Alison. That was great. There we go, Jeff Apter. That was really cool, Al.
Well, it was, yeah, it was cool. It was kind of funny too. I had to, I mean, I had to laugh. Of all the books for Aretha to bring up, The Thornbirds, and, you know, he hadn't read it. I was like, Ooh, who hasn't read The Thornbirds? The Thornbirds. Like, it was, I would have been in. Aretha mm. and I would have been besties. I would have had stuff to say <laughs> and he didn't have anything to say. It was quite funny. Um, okay, so this brings us to the end of this week's episode. What are you doing in the coming week, Al? That's a very good question, Valerie. What am I doing? Um, well, I'm continuing a pace with um, my current manuscript, which is going to be book two of the Maven and Reeve mystery series. Yay! Um, yay! Cheers and cartwheels. <laughs> I'm at that point in the story where I've got absolutely no idea what's happening um, and I feel like I'm <laughs> writing around and about in circles and I have to just kind of hope and trust that – I'm going to get to the end of it and go back later and think that wasn't as bad as I thought. That's what I'm I'm aiming for. Oh, that's not as bad as I thought it was um, right. when I do the editing process. So, you know, I don't aim high, so that's not a bad thing, right? Yeah, no. <laughs> I'm sure it's going to be amazing, just like yeah. all of your books. Oh, it'll end up amazing. <laughs> this is just my first draft moment of that's not as bad as I thought. If I get that's not as bad as I thought out of a first draft, I yes. am on fire. On fire. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, somebody else who's on fire, actually, I just want to give a big shout out to Susanna Hardy, who is one of our podcast Oh, listeners. yes. So exciting. Yes, Susanna, so hello. excited. Oh, my God. So she has signed her contract for her book, which she has been working on for some time. And it's just been fantastic to see her progress and go through this journey and now be able to drink French champagne in celebration. We, I cannot, I mean, she's such a great writer and I cannot wait for this book to come out. I don't know what it's called yet, but, and it's going to be some time before it's out, but um, congratulations to Susanna Hardy, who is, you know, alumni of the Australian Writers' Centre, but also a podcast listener and um, very excited to hear that you've signed a contract. I think it's Pan McMillan. Um, yeah, but, I think or, so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, signed a contract. So very, very excited. <clears throat> All right. So uh, where do we find you online, Al? You'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at altait, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at alisontaitwriter. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me um, at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. Of course, you'll find all of the show notes over at SoYouWantToBeAWriter.com.au. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.